BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your friend, your pal, your ear lover, your literary professor emeritus mansplainer-in-chief, Michael Ian Black. It is, as always, a delight and joy to join you as we gallop through these final pages of Jude the Obscured. When I say final, there's, oh, there's, oh, oh, there's a lot more. (laughs) Um, There's, you know, look, we're not going anywhere today, you know? Uh, We got several more episodes here, but I can tell by my, uh, by my tattered copy, uh, Penguin Classics, Jude the Obscure. We're now into the 400s, and let me tell you, we do not get out Okay, we do not arrive at the 500s, so we are nearing somewhat the end, and we'll all be the better for it. Because I said in the beginning, the very, very beginning of this podcast journey, when we have finished reading Jude the Obscure together, you will be able to say at any gathering of significance that you have read Jude the Obscure, or at least you have listened to me read it, which amounts to the same thing. And then the people that you are with will look at you and go, okay, great. And you will then feel a little foolish because you have invested so many hours along with me into this for no purpose greater than bragging rights and being able to say that you have done so. But why do things have to have a purpose? The point is we're enjoying ourselves, you and I, as we traverse along the cobblestone paths of Christ Minster. And we're certainly enjoying ourselves more than the little Folly family, all of them chilled to the bone from the day's rain, unable to find lodgings for the night, being kicked out of house and home by a a landlady who does not approve of their situation. 
they're not doing great. And they're, you know, they just got kicked out of this place that they were going to stay for the night. And Jude is off somewhere else. And little father time is thrown a little fit because he just found out his adopted mother is preggers. He's saying things like, it would be better if I was dead, if the other kids were dead, if everybody was dead, if we'd never been born. And we're hearing echoes of Aunt Drusilla in Little Father Time. And we are reminded that history, as they say, doesn't uh, repeat, but it does echo. And so Father Time is now echoing. And of course, I give him the voice of of a morbid little child. He's actually based on this my voice for him is basically this uh, performance artist that I knew in New York, who maybe some of you have heard of, but probably not. He himself, this artist, was and remains fairly obscure. And there's, there's that, uh, you know, there should be a trumpet when I say obscure. We should have done it hundreds of episodes ago. But Edgar Oliver is this New York performance artist who comes from the Deep South Um, But you would never know it because he speaks like a character from an Edward Gorey story. And so he speaks like this. And it's creepy and morbid and kind of charming in its way. And that is the voice I have assigned to Little Father Time, who has just said to his mother, If we children was gone, there'd be no trouble at all. Don't think that, dear. This is his mother saying And then she says, go to sleep. So they have found, you know, the the, the terrible little room that they're staying for the night. Jude is off God knows where in his own lodgings. Um, The rain continues to come down in Christminster. Things are rather bleak at the moment, but let us pick up the story. The following morning, she awoke at a little past six and decided to get up and run across before breakfast to the inn, which Jude had informed her to be his quarters, to tell him what had happened before he went out. She arose softly to avoid disturbing the children who, as she knew, must be fatigued by their exertions of yesterday. She found Jude at breakfast in the obscure tavern he had chosen as a counterpoise to the expense of her lodging, and she explained to him her homelessness. Never good. Never good when you have to go find your husband to tell him that you and your children are homeless. That's just not a great conversation, particularly when Jude is sitting there in all his finery, eating his fine, full English breakfast, just gorging on beans and cornflakes. He had been so anxious about her all night, he said. Somehow, now it was morning, the request to leave the lodgings did not seem such a depressing incident as it had seemed the night before, nor did even her failure to find another place affect her so deeply as at first. Jude agreed with her that it would not be worthwhile to insist upon her right to stay a week, but to take immediate steps for removal. So the landlady kicked her out. She's like, let me just stay for the night. He's not, she, uh, the landlady's like, okay, fine, but you got to go. You got you, you to go and take your morbid little children with you. And there'll be no beans and cornflakes for you. 
You must all come to this inn for a day or two, he said. It is a rough place, and it will be not so nice for the children, but they have pinball machines and space invaders. He didn't say that. But we shall have more time to look round. There are plenty of lodgings in the suburbs, in my old quarter of Beersheba. Have breakfast with me now. You are here, my bird. You are sure you are well. There will be plenty of time to get back and prepare the children's meal before they wake. In fact, I'll go with you. She joined Jude in a hasty meal, and in a quarter of an hour they started together, resolving to clear out from Sue's too respectable lodging immediately. On reaching the place and going upstairs, she found that all was quiet in the children's room and called to the landlady in timorous tones to please bring up the tea kettle and something for their breakfast. This was perfunctorily done, and producing a couple of eggs which she had brought with her, she put them in the boiling kettle and summoned Jude to watch them for the youngsters while she went to call them, it being now about half past eight o'clock. So, as I said, no beans and cornflakes for you. She had to bring her own eggs. All she got was some a tea kettle and a little water to boil the damn eggs. And she's saying, Jude, watch the eggs. I got to get, the, get these fucking kids up. Jude stood bending over the kettle with his watch in his hand, timing the eggs so that his back was turned to the little inner chamber where the children lay. A shriek from Sue suddenly caused him to start round. He saw that the door of the room, or rather closet, which had seemed to go heavily upon his hinges as she pushed it back, was open, and that Sue had sunk to the floor just within it. Oh, this isn't good. Oh, this isn't good. Whatever's happening isn't good. I'm telling you right now. Little Father Time said he was going to basically said he was going to either murder himself or murder their kids, and now Sue is uh, is on the floor. And I will admit to you right now, dear reader, I am nervous. I am nervous, and I don't think I like what's coming. And I feel like maybe I should just end now because I was in a good mood as we started this podcast. And now, if there really is murder and mayhem, I'm not going to be pleased. I will be displeased and sad. And although I know. I have known in my bones that this was coming to a tragic end. If there is indeed tragedy in the following paragraphs, I'm telling you right now, I am not emotionally prepared. I don't know what to do here because I don't want to read something devastating about children. Oh, God. Sue had sunk to the floor just within it. Hastening forward to pick her up, he turned his eyes to the little bed spread on the boards. No children were there. Okay, that's not so bad. The children are missing. Okay, the children are gone. That happens all the time. Kids, you know, run away from home. Uh, Little Father Time has taken them on an excursion to the fair where they're going to run the Maypole and ride the Tilt-A-Whirl. Let us assume that is all that is wrong. Okay, let us not assume the worst just yet. Let's just eat our eggs and drink our tea. And then when that is accomplished, We'll go outside and we'll call for the children and I'm sure they will come round immediately. He looked in bewilderment round the room. At the back of the door were fixed two hooks for hanging garments and from these, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh no. At the back of the door were fixed 
two hooks for hanging garments, and from these the forms of the two youngest children were suspended, oh God, by a piece of box cord round each of their necks. Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Oh, boy. Oh, no. While from a nail a few yards off, the body of little Jude was hanging in a similar manner. An overturned chair was near the elder boy, and his glazed eyes were slanted into the room, but those of the girl and the baby were closed. Ah, uh, ah, uh, oh, ah. Uh. Uh, yeah, I'm not ready for this. I am truly not ready for this. Who? Uh, I mean, here's the thing. I know there's no. Okay, first. Okay, first of all, this was unearned. Okay, this was unearned. There is nothing in this book to this point that would suggest that this is merited. I mean, nothing would ever suggest that to anybody. I mean, when you have kids, as I'm sure many of you do, there's only cliches to express this, this feeling. And, and look, I'm just reading a fucking book, but you can't imagine I can't imagine. And not only that, I won't allow myself to imagine such a thing. It's too horrible. And unfortunately, I am imagining it. And, like, I keenly feel my heart right now. Just sitting there like a stone in my chest. And my eyes are kind of afraid to return to the book. When I said murder-suicide, I didn't mean it. I mean, maybe Jude kills himself, sure. But now that, we, now that when, when we are confronted with it, it is too horrible. And I am not, uh, as I said, I'm not emotionally prepared to deal with this. Uh, all right, look, before I keep reading, let's, let's, I need a break. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Hi, we're back on Obscure. I'm going to keep reading. I can't say I'm looking forward to it. I'm sure you're not looking forward to it. But, you know, what, am I, what, what are we going to do? We're in this together, so... Let's go on. Half paralyzed by the strange and consummate horror of the scene, he let Sue lie, cut the cords with his pocket knife, 
and through the three children on the bed, but the feel of their bodies in a momentary handling seemed to say that they were dead. He caught up Sue, who was in fainting fits, and put her on the bed in the other room, after which he breathlessly summoned the landlady and ran out for a doctor. When he got back, Sue had come to herself, and the two helpless women, bending over the children in wild efforts to restore them, and the triplet of little corpses, formed a sight which overthrew his self-command. Oh, God. The nearest surgeon came in, but as Jude had inferred, his presence was superfluous. The children were past saving, for though their bodies were still barely cold, it was conjectured that they had been hanging more than an hour. The probability held by the parents later on when they were able to reason on the case was that the elder boy, on waking, looked into the outer room for Sue and, finding her absent, was thrown into a fit of aggravated despondency that the events and information of the evening before had induced in his morbid temperament. Moreover, a piece of paper was found upon the floor on which was written in the boy's hand with the bit of lead pencil that he carried. Done because we are too many. Ugh. So, he woke up, uh, didn't see Sue, and decided, well, I mean... <sighs> I'll just kill everybody and then kill myself. Just a horror show. Just a goddamn horror show. And now... And now what? I mean, now what? I mean, Jude and Sue are done, okay? We just know that. I mean, that's the end of them. That's the end of their lives. There is no going back for them. There is no happiness to be restored. There is nothing, nothing, nothing left. Other than the fact that Sue is pregnant, and perhaps that is why... Hardy made her pregnant so that we would have another 80 fucking pages to read after this disaster. Because otherwise, they might as well just take the cords and hang themselves from them. I mean, because what else is there? What, there's nothing to live for now. It seems so very unfair. I mean, obviously. But they had found a measure of happiness. And although they had been warned from the very beginning, the follies do not marry, because it never ends well for them. And though Jude had been confronted with the spot where his own relatives had been hanged, I think an uncle or something had been hanged, there in Mary Green, it seems unfair that he had shed every preconception he had about his faith and about the strictures of his life, he had changed himself into a person who could be happy, only to discover this bottomless well of despair. So they've just read Jude Jr.'s suicide note, done because we are too many. At sight of this, Sue's nerves utterly gave way, 
in awful conviction that her discourse with the boy had been the main cause of the tragedy, throwing her into a convulsive agony which knew no abatement. They carried her away against her wish to a room on the lower floor, and there she lay, her silent figure shaken with her gasps, and her eyes staring at the ceiling, the woman of the house vainly trying to soothe her. Well, at least they got a few more hours of lodging out of the deal, right? They could hear from this chamber the people moving about above, and she implored to be allowed to go back and was only kept from doing so by the assurance that if there were any hope, her presence might do harm, and the reminder that it was necessary to take care of herself lest she should endanger a coming life. Her inquiries were incessant, and at last Jude came down and told her there was no hope. As soon as she could speak, she informed him what she had said to the boy and how she thought herself the cause of this. No, said Jude. It was in his nature to do it. The doctor says there are such boys springing up amongst us, boys of a sort unknown in the last generation, the outcome of new views of life. They seem to see all its terrors before they are old enough to have staying power to resist them. He says it is the beginning of the coming universal wish not to live. He's an advanced man, the doctor, but he can give no consolation to. And he interrupts himself. Jude had kept back his own grief on account of her, but he now broke down. And this stimulated Sue to efforts of sympathy, which in some degree distracted her from her poignant self-reproach. When everybody was gone, she was allowed to see the children. The boy's face expressed the whole tale of their situation. On that little shape had converged all the inauspiciousness and shadow which had darkened the first union of Jude, and all the accidents, mistakes, fears, errors of the last. He was their nodal point, their focus, their expression in a single term. For the rashness of those parents he had groaned, for their ill assortment he had quaked, and for the misfortune of these, he had died. So Hardy's blaming them. Hardy's saying, yeah, I killed your son and, your, and it's your fault. And I killed your other two kids and that's your fault too. Because of your accidents, mistakes, fears, and errors. And the inauspiciousness and shadow which had darkened your father's first marriage. And this is the result. A bad marriage led to this, and then a good marriage cemented the deal. But listen to this from the doctor. There are such boys springing up amongst us, boys of a sort unknown in the last generation. The outcome of new views of life. They see all its terrors before they are old enough to have staying power to resist them. How horribly do those words resonate with us today? How horribly, as we see school shootings, do those words resonate? 
it's not just the terrors of life. It's also uh, the hopelessness of life, the frustrations of life, and the inability to see oneself out of the blackness. It is the beginning of the coming universal wish not to live. Well, I think fortunately for us, that prophecy has not been fulfilled. We all, almost all, desire to live and to live peaceably and well. But we certainly see the symptoms of that prophecy. We certainly see the edges of our culture frayed and burned. And I think a lot of us feel like perhaps it's getting worse. Maybe we have always felt that way, that it is always getting worse. And maybe we are right. Maybe it is always getting worse. Maybe the prophecy just hasn't quite come to fruition, but we sense that we are getting closer. And at the same time, he's asking, Hardy, I mean, what is the cause of this universal wish not to live? And we have concerned ourselves with this question from the very beginning of the book. When we saw that the church itself in Mary Green, the ancient church, had been demolished and replaced by something cheap and new. When even the pig farmers must move to Australia to find a new way to live because the mechanization of work has robbed people of their agency. And slowly, slowly, the old life is beginning to fade, replaced by something new and harried and brutish. Jude has certainly found himself displaced and feeling the changes of his own society imposed upon him. He has tried to get ahead of it. He went to Christminster to get an education. And now it looks like he is. It is an education that he did not want but it is an an education nonetheless. And what is he learning? Hard to say. He's learning that you can't outrun who you are. You can't outrun what appears to be your destiny. Perhaps you can only modify it in degrees. What would have happened if Jude, as a child, had just accepted his fate to be an obscure laborer there in Mary Green to perhaps work at his aunt's bakery, to maybe plow the fields, to maybe continue to watch for the crows among the corn. What would have happened if he had just contented himself with his own sad lot instead of getting pretensions of thinking he could do better? He had tried to do in one generation, he says, what it normally takes three. He had blustered and bumbled his way to Christminster, where he finally met his cousin Sue. What would have happened if he'd stayed? It was only through his education that he met Arabella. He was taking back roads so that he could read his books without being troubled by the constabulary, constabulary, constable, policeman, 
Because you remember he had been sort of operating his car, his horse cart on uh, self-pilot so that he could cram his Latin and his Greek. And then he had heard Arabella. Maybe he never would have met her if he had just contented himself. But he could not. And as a modern American reader, we think to ourselves, well, why should he have? Shouldn't we all strive for more? Shouldn't we always try to better ourselves? Shouldn't we all try to get an education and lift ourselves up? Shouldn't we all be trying to do in one generation what it normally takes three? That is what our nation was built upon. But here we have the counterexample. And Jude, just the day before, had called to the crowd, Judge me not. You do not know what I have endured. You do not know whether I have chosen the right path or the wrong by looking at me, by the outward signs of my success. But now there can be no mistake. The path he chose was the wrong one. And time for another break. Back in a minute on Obscure. Back on Obscure, and uh, we are having a tough time this episode, aren't we? Let's just read a little bit more before we wrap up, and then we'll curl up in a fetal position. When the house was silent, and they could do nothing but await the coroner's inquest, a subdued, large, low voice spread into the air of the room from behind the heavy walls at the back. What is it? said Sue, her spasmodic breathing suspended. The organ of the college chapel. The organist practicing, I suppose. It's the anthem from the 73rd Psalm. Truly, God is loving unto Israel. How loving is he? She sobbed again. Oh, oh, my babies. They had done no harm. Why should they have been taken away and not I? There was another stillness broken at last by two persons in conversation somewhere without. They're talking about us, no doubt, moaned Sue. We are made into a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. And then we have our first footnote. 54. Let me go to it. She's quoting something. Is it the Bible? Probably. Corinthians. She's quoting Corinthians. We are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. Yes, you are, Sue. Yes, you are. Jude listened. No, they are not talking of us, he said. They are two clergymen of different views arguing about the eastward position. Another footnote 55. The two clergymen were discussing which way the priest should face at the altar during the celebration of the Eucharist, a matter to which great theological importance had had been attached by some. 
the Oxford movement favored the eastward position as more appropriately representing what it believed to be the role of the priest in the communion service. At the time, this was the universal practice in the Roman Catholic Church, but many Romans, as well as Anglicans, now favor the westward position, with the priest facing the congregation across the altar, so they are quibbling over nothing. And just through the walls, you have two people suffering the greatest horror any two people can suffer. And there, on the other side of the wall, the flaccid arguments of the clergy about which position one should face. Good God, the eastward position and all creation groaning. Then another silence, till she was seized with another uncontrollable fit of grief. There is something external to us which says you shan't. First it says you shan't learn. Then it said you shan't labor. Now it says you shan't love. He tried to soothe her by saying, that's bitter of you, darling. Well, fuck. Yes, it's bitter, Jude. It's a little bitter, don't you think? And is she wrong? Is she in any way or shape wrong? There is something external pressing upon them, and we do not know what it is, because it is everything. And how do you define what isn't when all you know is what is? And what is for them is a continuing malignant presence pressing down on them and expelling all the life from them. The way you wring clothes through one of those old antique uh, uh, wash thingies, you know, where you wring out the water from the clothes. And that's what's happening to them. They're being wrung out drop by drop. You shan't uh, learn, you shan't labor, you shan't love. It's bitter of you, darling, but it's true. And they can get no comfort. There is no comfort to be had. There's no comfort from the organ of the church. There's no comfort from the clergy of the church. They have no faith. They have no belief. And now they have no hope, save for the child within Sue. And how'd you like to grow up as that kid? How'd you like to be that kid growing up? And being like, mother, why am I an only child? We'll talk about it later, sweetheart. We'll talk about it later. I'm going to stop. I'll stop there. You know, I mean, I don't know that it can get any worse. I mean, it can. Probably will. I've been I've been calling for a murder suicide and now we have it. And I'm telling you, I didn't know. I didn't read any of this. I didn't know. I just knew it was going to be bad. I didn't know it was going to be quite that bad. I mean, that's really bad. It's like the worst thing I can imagine. I'm trying to think how to even make it worse. You couldn't. Even violence wouldn't have made it worse. Like just the deliberateness of it is such a horrible spectacle. An unimaginably horrible spectacle. And how, I mean, how do we even conclude today? How do we even wrap this up in a way that doesn't leave all of us feeling like we wouldn't like to hang ourselves from coat hooks? I don't know that we can. I mean, I'm not sorry to see Father Time go. I'll be honest. I didn't like the kid from the very beginning. And I would have been okay if it had just been him. But it's just, it's the, it's, it's, it's the portrait of the three of them 
that ghastly, unnatural portrait. I don't like it. I don't think you like it. And in a way, what makes it worse to me is that it didn't feel inevitable, right? He didn't earn this. Hardy didn't earn this. Yeah, Father Time was morbid, but we never really understood him. We never knew what made him tick. We just knew that he was a strange little child as he looked out from the train car. We just knew that he wasn't quite right in the head. Is he really an avatar for the children, the new children? I do know that we see horrors like this visited upon us regularly. And hopefully we are not immune from them. All right. I got to make dinner somehow. I'm bummed out. I'm bummed out and I got to make pork chops. No beans and cornflakes for me. What do we... I mean, I don't even know. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to end. I can tell you that here in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, the light has faded. The sky, the summer sky, is overcast with clouds. It has been raining as it was in Christminster on that day. And I'm suffused in a kind of gloaming, literally and emotionally. And I suspect you are the same. So, let's just sit with it. And we'll continue next time. We'll try to put the pieces back together. I'm not optimistic. I don't think things are going to end well for anybody. But we do have the tiniest bit of hope gestating within Sue. So let's seize on to that, why don't we? Let's just hold on to some hope. And I will visit with you again next week. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. To subscribe and get more information, visit our show page at Earwolf.com. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can talk to us at Obscure with Michael Ian Black at gmail.com. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor from the wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black.